What is market urbanism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Scott Beyer. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Scott Beyer. Scott is a roving cross-country journalist who writes regular columns for Forbes, Governing Magazine, and HousingOnline.com. He owns and manages the Market Urbanism Report, covering topics like housing, transportation, and public admin. He's also active online in forums that discuss market urbanism in a way that keeps the conversation local and relatable. Scott, welcome to The Curious Task. Alex, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So Scott, in each episode, we like to start with a question, just go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. So I'll kick it right off and right over to you. What is market urbanism? So the short answer would be market urbanism is the cross between free market economics and policy and urban issues. So I'm looking at how classical liberal, laissez-faire, free market ideas apply to cities. Um, and, and so that would be the short answer. I'd say that it, it's two different things specifically, though. Um, on one hand, market urbanism is a philosophy and a theory that asks how would cities function in a free open market um, but on the other hand, market urbanism is a set of, it's not just a theory or a philosophy, it's a set of tangible policy reforms that can actually be applied in the cities, given their current context, their, their current political context. So in that case, market urbanism is, is addressing things like housing and transportation in a way that would be pragmatic um, and politically realistic. I just want to make a quick distinction right off the bat here, because I think when I talk to people, at least, I find that they sometimes get confused. When we are talking about markets, we are distinguishing that from just pure private action. For instance, if, and I'm just making up a silly example here to, to, to illustrate the point, but if a city decided to hand, hand over some sort of function or a or a specific service to, to, to one private company and not allow competition or something, that's not the kind of stuff we're talking about. We're talking really about market-driven solutions to certain problems, correct? That's right. Um, yeah, I think it's what you're describing there would be public-private partnerships, which could be good in some cases. Right. But if it's a, if kind of like you said, if it's a monopolistic activity where you have no bid contracts and one sort of like politically connected company is able to run a local service, that's not an open market. What I'm talking about is is the idea of having open markets, not even just in the in the government bidding and contracting, but the, for the entire economy. The idea that if somebody wants to start a business, they can do so uninhibited and, ha and engage in mutually beneficial exchange with consumers, that sort of thing. Um, the idea of free markets. So shifting gears a little bit here, in, there's a great video online. It's like a little intro video to, to the uh, the Market Urbanism website and, and that. But uh, you said in the video, cities are America's strongest asset. What do we really mean by that? I thought that was a very powerful statement. And I like the way you talked about it in the video. Yeah. So I think um, that specific statement was inspired by an article I read for Forbes. I guess it was several years ago now that was comparing the GDPs of different metro areas and it's really just amazing. It's like there's only a handful of, of countries around the world that have a higher GDP than New York City. Hmm. And so I think um, when I was saying it's the strongest asset, what I was saying is that 
It accounts for a disproportionate amount of the United States GDP and is really where all our very a great deal of our wealth and productivity come from is our biggest metro areas. And you and you followed that up by saying, you know, bad economic policy robs cities of their economic potential. And I guess when you combine the idea that cities are a country's greatest asset, you know, sometimes we we think of just, oh, the country is very wealthy, but ultimately it's made up of cities. And then if bad economic policy can rob the economic potential, that's pretty serious stuff. Yeah, it is. And I mean, we we see that nowadays. There was a study by, um, I believe, the economist Enrico Moretti that determined that if we did, I mean, we do currently have bad economic policies, particularly housing policies that prevent people from moving to productive metro areas as of now. And that if we loosen those policies, say in New York and San Francisco alone, the metro areas, and more people were able to move into those areas and access good jobs, the entire national GDP would increase by like 10%. Wow. So that goes to show, I mean, like, Yes, bad economic policies, particularly as they're applied to productive major metro areas, really does have uh, major consequences. And often people tend to, if they spot some sort of problem, maybe the economy is weak or weakening, or uh, there's some uh, you know unrealized potential, people, of course... Uh, tend to turn to government and say, oh, well, how can the government help here, here, and here? But ultimately, of course, what you're saying is that that's not the route to take, or at least that shouldn't be your first reaction. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I think the entire premise behind market urbanism is that many of the po- many of the problems that we see um, in cities today are interpreted as market failures, when in reality, they are not market failures, they're, they're public policy failures. Right. They're acts by the government that have directly interfered with how things should be organically happening and that would produce the best outcomes. And those government policies are preventing it. Right. And and as well online, you said market urbanism rejects. And there's three main things that were uh, listed in, the, in that video I saw. Uh, master plans, public service monopolies, yeah. and top-down government policies. So let, let's take each of them and go into them a little bit so we could really illustrate this. So master plans, what, what exactly are those and why does market urbanism reject it? Master plan could mean a number of things uh, in the modern political context. So on one, th- on one hand, every municipality within a given metro will have its own zoning code, and the zoning dictates what kind of use can go in, on specific land plots, what kind of density, um, and generally just the whole way the economy is run in that given municipality. But then I think on the larger regional level, you'll very frequently have comprehensive plans right now that do some of the same things. They, um, they're they full of kind of these airy generalities about how they want the city to, how, how we want our, our region to function, things like we want it to be sustainable and we want it to be equitable. But I think in, in, in reality, it's sort of like economic top-down management of saying this specific area of the region should be used, should be done for this use and another specific area should have another specific use. And so it's, it's an attempt by bureaucracies and people within government to micromanage 
the large organism that is a, a major metro area. This would come to fruition, I guess. I'm just thinking in my head, making up an example, but you know, a, a city and its council might get together and say, okay, we want this area to be for business and this area to be for, a, like, I don't know, the medical sector. Here's the area for shopping. And then here's how we can do that and build the infrastructure. And then ultimately it just becomes someone's idea on a draft sheet of paper rather than something that's uh, spontaneous and organic. Right. I mean, it's the lack of spontaneity. And sometimes this is, this is done on a macro level. For example, um, a regional government will write an urban growth boundary and say that no amount of growth can go, can sprawl out beyond this point. Uh, that's a very arbitrary way to run a metro area. In other cases, it's a little bit more granular. They'll say that this district should be the arts district, um, you know, and they'll usually like find a, a district with a bunch of old warehouses that are, have been uh, adaptively reused into some sort of recreational use. And they'll say that should be the arts district. And they'll say another area should be the medical district. Um, but I think even, even more specifically than that, it's sort of like this hyper granular um, approach, even down to the given block. Right. It's saying something like this corner should be ground level retail, but that corner should be housing and that corner should be office space. And it's sort of like, that's not really how people work. That's not how the economy works. Like things are much less predictable and far more organic than that in real life. And to say that uh, you should dictate the use of a, of a given building or a, a given block or lot is sort of like uh, antithetical to the way cities function. Right. It's almost as if, if you were an entrepreneur and you saw, oh, that this little area here would be great to put a store in or, or I'd rent that building and put this great idea I have only to find out that whatever regulation is getting in your way happens to be, oh, sorry, this is only a certain type of office space that can go here. It can't be like a, a front end, you know, facing a street store kind of thing. That, that's the kind of stuff, I guess, that's involved in master planning that hampers the, the spontaneity, as you were saying. Right. And, and I think it has real world consequences. So to give you an example... I think some people would argue that the retail sector, by and large, is now contracting. Um, as far as like the need for real estate space in the retail sector, just because so many retail sales are taking place online, and there's sort of like this flux in the industry about what retail space should even be used for. And in the meantime, we have, and so you'll you'll go to major cities like New York and San Francisco, and you'll see empty retail space in really prime locations because the industry has just changed. But then at the same time, those same cities have a massive housing shortage. And there's a, there's a huge like occupancy rate of all the existing apartments because there's so much competition and population growth for, for, for living in those areas. So it's sort of like, even, I think even if you were a smart planner, you would look at that and say, well, maybe we should have, less retail space and more space for housing. Like maybe some of that space should be converted. Um, but the zoning gets in the way and the zoning says, no, this area has to remain retail or office when in reality, there's not as much demand for that. And before we leave and, and move on from master plan specifically, you, you, you mentioned like the term sort of smart planner. So it brings the question to mind sort of twofold. On the one hand, can you have a smart planner and someone actually helps uh, plan a city? And on the other hand, what would that look like if so? Um, well, I'm, I'm pretty much of the opinion that uh, like whether or not a, 
a, a planner is quote unquote smart or dumb. I think that the idea of a city being planned by the government in general is just a bad idea. Um, that said, a lot of a lot of the planning profession I find is um, they do tend to be sensible on a lot of these things. Like I think a lot of a lot of urban planners and licensed planners that I speak with, um, they are for more density and they're for more economic growth. And in a lot of cases, their their ideals are in the right place. But I think a secondary component to what we should call planning um, should not necessarily be certified planners who work in the government, but it could also be viewed as like the existing residents in a city, because in a lot of cases, they are the ones who are backing and supporting the regulatory apparatus. It's like if a if a developer wants to come into a city and get the zoning changed in order to build a new high-rise development, the existing homeowners and residents will often come to the town hall and seriously oppose this. Right. So I think when we talk about planning, it's it's multifaceted. On one hand, it is government bureaucrats who, uh, to your point, are are often not like they vary in their ability to really understand the economy. Some of them are good, others are bad. But then there a whole other component of what we could call planning would just be existing voters and residents within a city who are hostile to markets and hostile to change. And they kind of have a, a vested economic interest in keeping things exactly how they are. Or, or maybe perhaps even just like a vested aesthetic interest and they don't realize how they're, they may actually be personally losing out on some economic benefit from having a change. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated thing. I mean... The, t- the reason that an existing homeowner in a city would come out and block new development, <clears throat> there could be any number of reasons. I mean, some of them, it is just aesthetics, like they want a certain character to, to remain in their neighborhood. For others, they're really, uh, they're really like against having new traffic. In other cases, they're very against having new different types of people because they might have certain prejudices against different people moving into their neighborhoods. Right. But, but then I think also in a lot of cases, it's, uh, it, is, it can be economic, and that's where it gets complicated. Because on one hand, if their neighborhood is rezoned, and they could use their own property for more uses, that might theoretically increase their, their land values. But on the other hand, if, you, uh, if, if they come out and block new housing from getting built, in their metro, then that increases the value of their own homes because obviously there's more, there's less supply, but there's still the same level of competition for that supply. So it's kind of a, it's one of those kind of confusing conundrums, economic conundrums that define a lot of cities and define a lot of uh, resident voters. Right. Yeah. I'm just, I'm sort of reminded as you're talking about the housing prices there is that how certain people that I personally even know of have this sort of I don't know how they do it, but they're able to hold this sort of contradictory thought back because it is back to their self-interest ultimately that on the one hand, they'll say something like, oh, you know, the housing prices are are so high these days. I don't know how anyone does it. And on the other hand, they certainly want their personal houses price to stay high. Yeah. I mean, you, you do hear sort of this, um, this NIMBY dog whistle, so to speak, where they say if a certain property gets built next to their, next to their house, their property values will decline. Um, 
I don't really know if it, if it works that way or not. I think it just depends on the situation. Um, in some cases, having more competition in the neighborhood may cause their home prices to decline. But I think in other cases, if, if a new dense project goes up next to your house, then that brings more goods and services into the neighborhood and it, it could potentially increase your own land values. So yeah, I, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's a clear cut answer on that kind of thing. Shifting gears a little bit here. So market, what our market urbanism rejects, we talked about master plans and had a little discussion there, but you also listed yeah. public service monopolies. Yeah, I could go on and on on this one. I think um, <clears throat> if I were to give you the best example of what I mean there and the one that I write about the most, it's the idea that mass transit should be controlled by one top-down regional or city authority, um, as opposed to having competition in the transit marketplace. And so granted, this, this mentality can apply to a lot of different city services. Like, I, I'm against public school monopolies if it means that you can't have charter schools. I'm against public garbage monopolies if it means you can't have private trash pickup. But the one that I have studied the most is definitely the transit. Um, and basically, it's it's uh, it's bureaucracies such as the New York MTA, which runs the New York City subways and buses, or it's bureaucracies like uh, SFMTA, which does the same in San Francisco. Um, it would be one thing if if they just wanted to subsidize public transit, but ultimately, but often they are um, they double as agencies that regulate against competition to public transit. And so what that means is you can't have – they're sort of like these entrepreneurs in the mass transit space who want to come in and operate in cities and who I think would provide really good services. But they're oftentimes squelched by anti-competitive regulations that originate from those MTAs. Right. And as you said, it's one thing if a, if a city or let's say a set of people lobbying the city come to the table and say, oh, I think the municipality should be providing X, Y or Z. But it's a whole other ball game when they say, oh, and by the way, on top of that, no one else can try and provide that as well. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if you were to take market urbanism to its absolute extreme, you might say something like, well, I don't even believe in the idea of public transit because it's a government service and it right. requires government subsidy and you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't quite take it to that extreme. I'm fine with the idea of having public transit. I think it, I think it provides a valuable service just like public schools do, but I don't think they should double as a regulatory agency that then blocks off competition. And so, so here is, here's an example of what I would mean. Um, Chariot, which was a bus service that, which was basically like a private jitney service that originated in San Francisco and started operating in a bunch of different cities. They were doing really well in San Francisco. They were providing a, a bus service that was slightly nicer than what, what Muni was providing and cost just a little bit more. So it's kind of like this was bringing a good service to, to the consumer. And SFMTA came in and said, you can't run your buses along our routes. And of course, their routes are the, are the most intensive ones. Like those are the, the ones that are that are likeliest to be profitable. So for SFMTA to come in and tell Chariot that you can't run on the most profitable routes in San Francisco basically destroyed their business model. And so now, I mean, so that's what I mean by monopoly. It's like 
that means the San Francisco consumer can only choose to take muni buses. They can't take private buses like Chariot. Right. Yeah. And I think that actually rolls nicely into the next point I was going to bring up and highlight, which, and we touched on it a bit before, but it's the idea that, you know, market urbanism rejects top down government policies and ultimately favors bottom up market based solutions. And I think that's a really interesting and important point because a lot of people tend to think if there's no city plan, then there's no one driving the the bus, if you will, pardon the sort of pun, that it's all chaotic. Whereas in reality, this, this idea that we frame it as bottom up market based solutions is that there are people out there you know, trying to fulfill their own self-interest and do have intent to do certain things. And the solution is ultimately driven by those people. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard this described different ways. Um, I've heard the term emergent urbanism or emergent orders, um, you know, organisms, bottom-up urbanism. It sort of, it all speaks to the same general concept. And um, I think it's interesting that you use the word chaos because yeah, some people would 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 hear the word chaos and they associate it with something bad, but sometimes organized chaos or organized complexity can be good. Right. And so to to use the transit example again, it's kind of like if you did have an open, unregulated market in a place like San Francisco, you would not only have chariot buses, but you would have bike share, which has now been, which has been heavily cracked down on in San Francisco, you would have moped share, scooters, ride pool, van pool. Um, I like to describe it as like a buffet of options and all you can eat or, or an all you can ride mass transport buffet in the sense that you walk out on the city block and there's all these different options that you can access. Now that might sound chaotic, to some people, but I think, but I would view it as sort of like efficient chaos. And it's the type of thing where it's diversity, it's diversity of the urban order. And I think, um, I think that would actually improve the mobility in a place like San Francisco over just having a monopoly. Right. And if we take chaos in the sense of the good connotation as, as opposed to the bad one, then ultimately the, uh, the city's job is to create a very loose framework. So things can basically happen in the sandbox, if you will, spontaneously, and it's not controlled every step of the way. Right, exactly. And I, th I think that so far provides a great backdrop to everything we're going to talk about. We're going to take a quick break right now, but when we're back, we're going to get into some very specific examples. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Beyer. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Ken Dubian, and Liam O'Brien. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Beyer. So, Scott, I think we had a great conversation in the first part of our time here where we provided a backdrop for what market urbanism is. But of course, as we were speaking before, I think one of the best ways to further illustrate our, the points we've already discussed is to get into some specific examples. And I'm going to read a list that's found on your website that uh, really gets into a whole bunch of different categories that market urbanism principles can be applied to. And I'm going to read that whole list here, actually, for our listeners. And it's it's 
interesting because I bet a lot of people will find that as I read through the list, they're thinking to themselves, wait, these are all categories that, of course, a lot of municipal politicians and planners come to the table and say, no, no, this is what planning is supposed to solve. <laughs> municipal planning. So, so it'll be really interesting when we get into the discussion of specific ones. So here I go. This, this is the list of categories we can apply market urbanist principles to. We got affordable housing, accessory dwelling units, airports, buses, business improvement districts, charter schools, congestion density, design review boards, form-based codes, gentrification, historic preservation, homelessness, homeowners associations, inclusionary zoning, land value tax, localism, microtransit, minimum lot size requirement, minimum parking requirements, occupational licensing, paratransit, parking planning, privatization, public housing, public sector unions, rail, rent control, rideshare, setback requirements, sprawl, tax increment financing, toll roads, urban growth boundaries, urban renewal, user fees, value capture, and zoning. And again, if someone was listening to all that out of context, they think, what are you doing? Uh, setting up the next political debate? But no, this is a market urbanism discussion. So let's let's jump into a few specific ones that, that I think else people would really care about as soon as they hear about. So how do we apply market urbanism to th- something like affordable housing, Scott? Well, I'd say a I'd say the best affordable housing program would simply be to liberalize the market. Um, and specifically that, that uh, ties in with zoning a lot down at the bottom, but I think really attacking like the larger regulatory apparatus that prevents the necessary housing from getting built. And so basically if you did that, you'd, you'd have a lot more housing coming into the pipeline and there'd be a lot more like competition coming on onto the market and would be organically reducing the price of of existing homes. Um, so that would be that. That's kind of like the main market urbanism strategy is simply reduce the regulations so that more housing can get built. And uh, I guess this will necessarily have to have to tie into zoning. So we may as well link those yeah. two together: affordable housing and zoning. But I guess a common objection that you've probably heard, and I've I've seen it as well from a lot of people, is, well, that's all fine and good, Scott. But at the end of the day, if we let uh, you know, builders build whatever they want and developers develop whatever they want. We're just going to have a bunch of uh, middle class or upper middle class people building houses for other middle class and upper middle class people. And we're not going to have affordable housing anyway. That's that's a common objection you'll hear. Yes, that is. That's a common objection that I, I do hear. <laughs> I, I get it all the time. Um, and my answer would be that even even if you even if you accept the fact that the new housing that gets built and comes onto the pipeline is sold at a premium um, and only bought only only really bought by upper class people. It still accomplishes something for the housing market. It enables the older housing to filter down, and the older housing filters down and becomes affordable for lower income groups. So the comparison that I like to use is comparing the housing market to the to the car market. Um, and it's not a completely one-to-one comparison, but I think for the purpose of our conversation, it is a pretty good comparison just in the sense that when a new car is produced and goes onto a new car lot, it is sold at a premium. So it's sort of like if you go to your new Mercedes dealership, you'll find the most expensive Mercedes on the market right now. And the reason is that people pay more for novelty and things that are new often have new technology and new features and new amenities that cause people to want to pay more for it. 
But what that does is that is when those new cars come onto the pipeline, it causes used cars to become cheaper. So as a car becomes used and it depreciates, it it reduces in value. And that's why used cars are so much cheaper than new cars, um, because, you know, they they don't have as good a technology and they have depreciated and they they do have parts in them that may not be working as well anymore. And so I think housing is supposed to work the same way. It's like the older a home gets, the the more that it is supposed to reduce in price. And in fact, you do in in what they call elastic markets like Houston and Atlanta that build a lot of housing, that does happen. The older housing and the older neighborhoods depreciate in value. That's the way it's supposed to organically happen. It's only in really supply constricted markets like New York City and San Francisco does the old housing actually appreciate with time. And that's because of the artificial scarcity that has been imposed on those markets. But in a, in a healthy, organic housing market, the older a home gets, the less value it's supposed to have. Right, and I think the car analogy actually really does work, too, because pushing it even further, you think to yourself, well, you know, uh, a Lexus is not going after the same target market or audience as a Honda or Toyota is, right? So it's, it's kind of weird to think that if there was more of an open market for housing, that no business person is going to think of different tiers of houses or maybe specialize in one area versus the other. Right, yeah. I think, I think there's a fundamental flaw in thinking that new housing is supposed to be affordable. And yet it, it becomes a it has become this common element within our even within our affordable housing policy. It's like a lot of the reason that affordable housing, quote unquote, government like government subsidized affordable housing. The reason it's it's so expensive is because we try to build it and then provide it anew. Right. You know, it's sort of like if you build a brand new building and then insist that those units are supposed to be affordable you've just zeroed in on the most expensive possible affordable housing program that you possibly can. Whereas I think um, older housing, there's a term called naturally occurring affordable housing. And that's, that's used to describe the filtering process, the process by which older units start out as luxury, they depreciate with time, and then they become naturally occurring affordable housing that is available to lower income groups. And another interesting point about subsidizing the property versus subsidizing, let's say, the person. Uh, we actually had Alain Berteau on this show a few episodes ago, and he did talk about, look, at the ver- if you're going to subsidize something, at the very least, why don't you subsidize people's freedom of choice? Give them some sort of rent subsidy, as an example. He wasn't recommending this as the best policy. He's just saying, but don't tie, as you said, subsidies to like expensive properties and basically lock people into where they should be living or not. Again, that's bringing down the spontaneity of what they can do with their lives. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I mean, I think the best affordable housing program is simply to build more housing. But if we were to have if we were to have some sort of government subsidy program, I think something like sec- here in the United States, Section Eight, where it's a it's a it's an affordable housing voucher that is given to people to shop the private rental market, and I think that is head and heels better than um, subsidized new affordable housing or public housing or anything that, like you say, sort of like locks the consumer into place or, or kind of keeps them into these into this one sort of project. 
you know, give them vouchers and let them shop the market. Right. And since we were dealing with affordable housing and zoning as sort of like a couplet, I want to finish off with, with zoning so it doesn't get an unfair share of the airtime there. So like sure. I, another common objection for zoning specifically, and, and then we'll move on to other ones, uh, other other categories is the idea. OK, fine. Let's say everything you said is, is, is great and it's going to be awesome, Scott. But what about this idea that someone's going to build a smokestack right next to my public park or, or, or my house? What do we deal with that? Are people just going to build things wherever they want, like heavy industry? I'm really uh, favoring a scaled down version of zoning that maybe just regulates against the noxious uses. Uh, so yeah, you can't have, you know, you can't come in and build a smokestack right into a residential neighborhood. Like if that were to be the only purpose of zoning, I think that would be fine. Mm-hmm. But Zoning nowadays is used to micromanage effectively every lot in every city, and it, it doesn't really serve a valid public protection. It's more like um, a building has to be a single family home as opposed to being a fourplex. You know, like there's no real rationale for that. Right. Or like, for instance, this little office space at the end of a neighborhood can't have a bakery in it for whatever reason. It has to be a daycare or something like that. Exactly. And, yeah, I think I think is zoning. um the, the way specifically that zoning prevents housing from being affordable, I think you really have to look at the urban infill zoning. It's this idea that like these hot urban markets that are really close to all the jobs should be zoned for single family or low density sprawl. It's like that just doesn't make any sense. And, and it's those that, in my opinion, is the most expensive and costly to society type of zoning regulation is this idea that you have low density zoning that's right next to jobs. And if you were to allow the market to work in those neighborhoods and just take away the zoning, you'd get substantially higher density housing in those areas. Shifting gears a little bit to, to another category. So we have what's the category on the, on the site, on the market urbanism site is congestion pricing. But ultimately, the what that yeah. addresses is congestion, right? When people think of cities and the, yeah. and the problem that they really want their counselor to go talk at city council to talk about is, is the congestion. How can we alleviate this? I go to work every morning, I'm stuck in traffic, and then everybody thinks that some sort of central plan is going to figure out a way to uh, basically undo that pipeline of traffic. So so how does market urbanism look at congestion? What can we do about that? Yeah, sure thing. It, it, it's a, And it's an important thing that comes up because I think in a lot of cases, a lot of the pushback against building new housing is that people are concerned about the traffic. And so I've thought long and hard about this issue because I think a market urbanist, if he, if they want to sound credible, they have to be able to have a, an intelligent answer to that concern. And I think the smartest answer that can be given is when you have a common good that is suffering from a tragedy of the, of the commons and congestion and overuse, the best thing you do is you price it. You adjust the prices based on the demand. So if there is, if morning and evening rush hour have a lot of congestion, you price the roads higher during that time and you price the roads lower during times of less congestion. And so what that does is that A, spreads the demand across different parts of the day so that you're less likely to get congestion in very specific times. And B, it creates a revenue stream so that there's money available to maintain the road and and make it nice for optimum use. And parking's another category in the market urbanism website that you say these principles can address. I'm assuming it's a similar idea, right? That if we allow for more dynamic pricing for 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 parking, then then we're going to be in a better situation and people are going to use it more wisely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I might actually want to update that tab because 
I think there's several different layers of the parking debate that market urbanism likes to cover. But I mean, that would be the main one. The idea that during points of peak demand, you 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 raise the price of parking so that there's not so much competition for it. And so that the, the demand spreads across different parts of the day. So that would be the type of thing we, a city would want to apply to on-street parking in some of their most congested areas. Um, as of now, a lot of times parking is free in cities. And so people, it, it, it creates all kinds of like traffic problems because people go around searching for the free parking. Whereas if they had to pay for it, they would either go to a garage or, you know, there'd be more free space. There, there'd be more available space along the curb because, you know, people aren't just going to linger and store their cars long term in a space that they have to pay for. So, yeah, it, it manages demand for parking to uh, price for it. Even at like a cost of something as low as, okay, maybe that's, a, that's an exaggeration. So not at all. Let's say $5. That would discourage some people from really using parking for what would be silly uses for that $5, right? You can picture right. people going like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to, you know, uh, go downtown for this one little thing I need tonight. I'll go tomorrow and the parking price is different because it's dynamic pricing or something like that. We're not going to just throw my car downtown in a free parking spot for that coffee run I want to do versus someone else has a business meeting and they would pay that $5 or, so, or something like that, right? Exactly. It, it's it's more, it's using public space in a more efficient way. Um, and then I think the other aspect of market urbanism parking policy is how, is sort of the private component, not necessarily concerning public right-of-way, but the idea that developers have to build a certain amount of parking spaces in their housing projects so I think there's there's all kinds of literature that has come out and said that minimum parking requirements raise the price, raise the per unit price of housing. Um, it, it oftentimes, depending on the project, it, it can cost thirty five to sixty five thousand dollars per parking stall if it's going in a structured um, building. And so that increases the price of housing per unit. And it also takes away space that could be used for additional housing. And so. There's a number of U.S. cities that have experimented with with um, eliminating their minimum parking requirements in specific neighborhoods. And what they find is that the developers respond by building less parking spaces inside their buildings and instead of building more housing units. And the price of those units actually go down. And tying it back to the, the affordable housing. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I would love to continue talking about parking because it is annoying in Ottawa as well. But I, I see our time's winding down. It, it really flies when we're doing this this kind of topic. So I wanted to move on to an, another big issue. Again, regardless if we're talking about city planning or market urbanist principles, uh, homelessness is huge on the agenda when it comes to cities. Uh, let, let's talk about that. How can we apply these principles to helping with alleviate homelessness? Sure thing. So a couple things are uh, important to note about this. So here in the United States, homelessness is actually decreasing nationwide uh, because we've we've focused some resources into solving the problem. It's only increasing in a handful of metros, uh, places like Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York City. So already that should tell you, like, really at the heart of homelessness are high housing prices. Um, high housing prices you know, to be sure, there are certain people who are are struggling with mental illness and are probably going to be homeless wherever they are. 
But there's also here in the U.S., we have a pretty sizable contingent of the working homeless, like people who actually do have jobs or part time jobs and should theoretically be able to afford housing. And yet they're getting priced out of the market. So, I mean, homelessness in a lot of ways is, a, is an affordable housing issue, and it, it deals with the shortage of affordable housing. So I think the main market urbanism response is simply to build more housing and, you know, cool the median home price in a given metro. And already you're going to be you're going to you're going to see a decline in homelessness. Um, I think beyond that, there there needs to be like more of an embrace of smaller housing options. Like oftentimes the regulations make it so that the housing that does get built has to meet a certain minimum standard, you know, so you can't have micro units or you can't have trailer homes. I think a lot of the market urbanism agenda is, is driven towards legalizing that type of housing so that you have really low priced entry units that can be afforded by almost every, by almost anyone. Um, And we used to have that in cities. Another thing was flop houses, you know, like the idea that you would, you would rent a bunk within a shared room and be able to, um, you know, rent it by the month and it would be very moderately priced. Uh, that kept a lot, that used to keep a lot of people out of homelessness, but those types of housing is, is also illegal now as well. Right. And I, and you did mention it before, uh, but I think it's always important to hammer on again that we're not just talking about allowing more houses full stop to be built or or more dwelling units. We're actually talking about the kinds of dwelling units as well are also heavily regulated. So allowing for different square footage and what kinds of uh, units can be built and where that's also going to alleviate the problem. Right. Yeah. And I mean, they, I think it's just the uh, regulation, no matter what type of house is getting built, regulation just sort of makes housing more expensive full stop. So, I mean, they, the National Association of Home Builders, which is a home building lobby here in the U.S., they did a survey and they said um, they asked them what was what were some of the costs that caused housing to be priced at what it was. And in many markets, in, in the average na- national market, regulation adds 24 percent to the starting price of a home. And so when you think about that, if our median home price is two hundred forty thousand. And 24% has been ha- has been tacked onto that. That means the home would otherwise have sold at at I guess 180,000. And so it's a lot easier to afford a home when it's being sold at 180,000 rather than 240,000. Moving on to another category, uh, on you had a list on the website density. So yes. this is this is again a big regardless of how you're coming to to the conversation. This is an issue that lots of people concerned with municipal issues talk about. So how how do we apply the principles to this category? I'm just making the basic statement there that I think uh, if you were to take away the zoning and let an open market uh, operate in cities, I'm of the opinion, and, and of course I can't prove it because none of us really know what the market would do. But I'm of the opinion that cities would get a lot denser. Because it, it costs money to extend infrastructure out beyond a certain point. And so if people are having to pay the full cost of infrastructure, they might be impelled to locate closer so that there's more units over top the sewer lines and over top the roads and over top the rail. Um, that makes the land use more efficient and the infrastructure cheaper to maintain. Um, and then I think the other side of that is 
the private market. You know, if you're a developer, you're going to make more money uh, building 50 units on your land plot over building one unit. And so I think that it's sort of like the market economics, I think, steer towards density far much more than they do towards sprawl. And moving on to another category, you highlighted rent control on the Market yeah. Urbanist website. And, and, and I think obviously... Um, a lot of people who are for rent control or at least think it's a good thing in theory often say, you know, the common objection is, well, if we don't have forms of it or at least a loose version of it, you know, landlords and and, and owners, they're just going to charge whatever they want. And then we're back into another affordable housing issue. That's one of the main common objections just to kick you off on that one. So how do market urbanist principles actually help, number one, affor- affordable housing, which we already talked about, but in the case of not having rent control? Well, I, I think rent control leads to a lot of different uh, distortions. So I think on one level, having any price control is, and rent control is really just a a form of a price control. I think when you have a price control, whether you're applying it to food or housing or automobiles or any consumer good, um, I think limiting the amount that somebody can profit from producing it is going to cause scarcity because you're taking away their incentive to, to produce. And so rent control did that in New York City uh, back in the 1970s when it was applied to new construction. Suddenly there was a a massive drop in new permits uh, issued because nobody wanted to build because they couldn't profit from doing so. Um, I think another thing now we don't here in the U.S. we don't usually apply rent control to new construction anymore because we saw what it did to the market. Uh, but we do sometimes apply it to existing units. And I think uh, there was a study out of Stanford University that studied the effects of rent control in San Francisco. And what it found was that it caused a lot of uh, units to get converted into condos because if a landlord who's renting an apartment can't recoup the necessary uh, cash flow to maintain their expenses because of the rent controls, it's much easier for them just to convert that unit to a condo where it can be sold at market rates on the open market to home buyers. And so that's what happened. Um, a lot of the a lot of the rental stock in San Francisco diminished and was uh, was turned into condos. Right. I guess it's important to note as well that I'll, these issues are obviously aren't completely separate. They tumble into each other, like uh, especially with housing prices. If on the one hand, you're constricting the supply of houses or units available to the market. And on the other hand, you're also trying to put a ceiling on the price. Like it's a, it's a yeah. double whammy as far as uh, scarce supply and, and is concerned. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So moving on to another one, again, regardless of how people approach the issue, we hear a lot about historic preservation when it comes to cities. So let, let's apply the market urbanist principles there. Well, I think that, that specific structures uh, sure, certainly should have historic protection, um, you know, specific architectural styles. <clears throat> so I could see I could see doing it on a building by building case, uh, basis. The issue is that uh, in the U.S. we often create overlays, <laughs> which is we're going to uh, we're going to put the historic preservation status over entire neighborhoods. And I think what that causes is it just it kind of like keeps a neighborhood stuck in time and prevents it from changing whatsoever or adding any sort of new economic activity. So it's kind of like, um, above all, that reduces the amount of housing that can get built uh, in that neighborhood and creates a housing shortage. Uh, but also just from a 
even in my opinion, from an aesthetic standpoint, it's not particularly desirable just because I think having neighborhoods that are diverse and have architectural styles that span the eras is actually uh, that makes for more interesting urbanism and more diverse and creative urbanism than basically just having like a neighborhood stuck in time. Moving on to another one, toll roads. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's two different market urbanism. There's sort of like two different angles you could take on toll roads. I think on one hand, market urbanists are very for the idea of having private roads that um, any, any business or group of investors could decide to build and manage and, uh, and they would be self-supporting through tolls. Now, that doesn't happen a great deal in the United States because we already have roads in place and it's very difficult to find right of way to just build a new road. Um, I think the, so I think the more practical use of tolls in the US context would be tolling the roads that we already have. So for example, there's a lot of interstates that are running through our cities that are very congested and they and there are talks in almost every situation about widening those roads or expanding the capacity in some other way, you know, maybe like building tunnels underneath the roads that create more lane miles. My whole thing is rather than expanding the roads and making them and still making use of it free, why not just toll the existing right of way so that you're not having to pay a bunch of money to expand the road. And that way, the same principles that I was talking about before with congestion pricing would apply here. If you told the existing capacity, then the demand spreads out more and you can get just as good of use out of the same amount of roadway. And a quick a quick common objection I've heard to this come to mind, so I'm going to throw it at you, is, well, hold on a minute. I pay through the roads through my taxes. So what does that mean? I have to pay through my taxes and then toll on the roads? But I guess the idea here is more about making the people who are actually going to use it pay for it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I talk about tolls, I present it as a alternative to general taxation. So I'm not saying the tolls and the taxes. I'm saying the tolls instead of the taxes. And, and so then, yeah, to your point, um, people who don't use the road and don't benefit from the road don't have to pay for it. Instead, the, 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 re- the um, expenses are being paid through the tolls and by the users. This might become an even more interesting conversation as time goes on, as things like ride sharing and driverless cars and, quite frankly, people just choosing not to have cars, that trend sort of continues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... So another form of tolling is something called congestion charging, which is you you cordon off certain neighborhoods and you basically say, if you want to drive into this neighborhood, you have to pay a, a congestion charge. I think that would uh, I think that would very much facilitate the rise of ride share and ride pooling industries because suddenly it would become really expensive to own your own car and drive it everywhere, but you would have these nascent industries pop up to still uh, satisfy the demand for getting around in the automobile, it would just be done through the ride sharing model. And and the last one I w- category I want to get in here before we, we get to some wrap up points is uh, occupational licensing. This is yeah. d- depending. I mean, like it's kind of I was going to say it's, it's sort of a, a hot button topic, but it isn't really. It's kind of one of those things you always hear about in the background until someone's shed collapses or something. And then we look into whether or not the guy was licensed. So I, I think it's, it's interesting. Let's talk about what this category here. Yeah. And, and a, a lot of occupational licensing here is actually written at the state level. And it is uh, 
it's sort of a protectionist strategy. I think, <clears throat> for example, the occupational licensing laws in a lot of states make it really hard to become a hair braider. Like you have to pay thousands of dollars and go through thousands of hours of training just to become a hair braider or like a hair stylist. And so do, do those laws serve a legit public protection? I'm going to say probably not. It's more like an effort by existing hairstylists to block off competition. Right. And so I think you see that that sort of uh, that that sort of occupational licensing exists all across industries. We actually just uh, covered occupational licensing in the Market Urbanism podcast, and the lady that we interviewed said that um, I'd, I'd have to give you the quote directly a little bit later, but she said something to the effect of back in the '50s. One in twenty industries had to have um, one in twenty workers had to have occupational licenses, and now it's one in four. Wow. So, so the whole occupational licensing industrial complex has uh, has grown a, a great deal. I love that, everyone. You heard it here. The occupational licensing industrial complex. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and back to the whole, when it comes to things like freedom of movement for people, like, you know, if they're licensed in one state for something, but not the other, and it costs them money to get the license again in another state, that's just Absolutely. pure and simple blocking what they want to do with their lives. And maybe that state's missing out an entrepreneur, but the current docu the people are protected in their occupation. But again, the economic growth might be hampered. Yeah. And it raises costs for the consumer as well. I mean, right. that's, the other side as well. So our time's winding down a little bit here, but uh, as we leave the, the category specifically, um, as I mentioned in the intro, you have you have a popular website on this topic. Everyone should go check it out. We'll leave a link in the, the episode notes. And and I noticed that you have a pretty active community on on fa specifically when people do their Facebook comments on the site, and that people are really into this topic. Like just a bit of wondering out loud with me here, if you will. Like why why do you think people are actually so interested? In, in this kind of topic, like it's not just economists commenting on things you put out there. It's, it's everyday people like this, this matters to people. Oh, yeah. I, I'd say the following is like rabid. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the word that comes to mind. And it's not just on Facebook. It's uh, Twitter. I even found opening up a market urbanism report Instagram. It's sort of like it picked off where it, it picked up where I left off in the sense that I got on there and started posting about the same things. And immediately there were all these people making comments of the same nature of like how much they wanted market urbanism in their city. So, yeah, I think there's a huge demand for these ideas. And um, I think what it boils down to, because a lot of the audience tends to be younger. And to answer your question of why there are so many people interested in this, I think my generation of people, millennials and ones even younger, are really upset about the high rents that they have to pay. And they're upset by the fact that their public transportation is not getting them where they need to go. And they dislike the fact that uh, urban right-of-way has, has become dominated by cars and congestion and pollution. And so it's sort of like these issues um, of high housing prices and unworkable transport grids really affects their life and their bottom line. And so I think that they really want to see policy change in this in this arena and market urbanism is presenting an alternative set set of ideas to be able to do that. For sure, for sure. And, and to add that too, I mean, as someone who's also part of the millennial age group myself, uh, some people I know within that age group, of course, they're looking at 
relatively speaking, their life ahead of them, right? Especially on the younger yeah. end of that that millennial spectrum, and even like you said, some of the even younger generation than millennial. Like if if they're thinking, oh, I'd like to start a business in this, you know, simple idea, a little bit entrepreneurial spirit. When they hit that wall of all that red tape and all the, all the hoops that they have to jump through just to start selling a muffin, I mean, like that's this is people thinking, what am I going to be doing for the rest of my life? This is what I want to do, and and I'm not really seeing an opportunity for me to do so. So that's definitely part of the frustration for sure. I would say. Yeah, yeah, and I think it really fits home for people who are urbanists and who want to live in New York and San Francisco. And I mean, for all the hoops that they're going to face and all the high costs they're going to face elsewhere, they're really going to face them in New York, San Francisco, Seattle, LA. So it's sort of like that's why my following is the biggest from those cities because that's where all of these uh, high housing costs and regulatory issues really hit home. For sure. Yeah. And if anyone, is listening from Vancouver at this point in time. I'm sure they can relate to a lot of what they've been talking about, uh, starting with housing prices, but not stopping there. So it's definitely uh, like there's a lot of American examples, a lot of Canadian examples, a lot of examples around the world. So no, no, this is, this has been a great, great discussion, Scott. Thanks so much. And and on every episode, we like to make sure the guest actually has the last word and the final thoughts. So let's bring it full circle. I'll allow you to put a finer point on, on our exploration of the question today. So, so we've talked about a lot, but ultimately what do you hope are the main takeaways? ways here if we could sum it up for someone listening to you on what exactly market urbanism is all about and why it's a why it's a great thing well i think market urbanism at the theoretical level is uh is talking about a fr- what a free market policy experiment is um but i think more at the practical level you don't have to be a libertarian or a free market ideologue necessarily to embrace market urbanism because at the end of the day we're just talking about things that are that are going to affect your life and so whether you're liberal or democratic socialist or whatever conservative um market urbanism is trying to solve policy challenges that are going and it's trying to make your city cheaper and denser and more mobile and uh more entrepreneurial and so it's in that respect, it's not necess- it's not so much an ideology as it is a set of solutions. Awesome. I think we'll end it there. Scott Beyer, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, Alex. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.